You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the NBDA. Thank you for listening. If you're a first-time listener, be sure to check out our previous episodes. Do us a favor and leave a review. I am Heather Mason, NBDA president. Today, I have Scott Chapin as our guest. He is a bicycle industry risk specialist and he works with Marsh and McLennan Insurance Agency. I'm a big fan. They have been a long supporter of the MBDA and we are thankful for that. Um, I got to chat with Scott last week and um, I'm really excited about our conversation today. So outside of his day job, Scott is an athlete who lives in the same hometown as the American Berkebeiner ski race, something that's definitely on my bucket list. Um, He also started the Fat Bike Berkey as well as helped to launch a 55 mile fat bike trail system, which I can't wait to know more about. He is a 12 year board member for the Berkey, a board member for NICA and co-author of the economic impact of trails and silent sports. So there's a lot going on. His work is endorsed by the MBDA, the PMBA, the bike cooperative QBP and many others. Welcome Scott. Oh, thanks for having me. This was like a brainstorm of our conversation last time. I was like, there's so much interesting little facts about you. We should do a radio. So thanks for sharing. (laughs) Um, So how's it been going since we caught up last? What have you been busy with? Oh, I mean, work's always busy. So um, I don't really mind working extra hours. Like we're where I live in Northwestern Wisconsin. We're in uh, mud season, which is uh for people in other parts of the country might not understand that term but that's the end of winter beginning of spring it's like fake spring fool spring and uh it's really not conducive for a lot of outdoor activities because uh, the trails are just uh shouldn't be riding them so mud season oh that's rough i used to live in lake placid and we definitely were not fans of the mud season it's um <laughs> so I know like you have a super impressive athletic resume. Um, you know, we were chatting and you shared with me about some of your running um, experience and your biking experience. And I, I know you're a skier as well. Um, how did like, is it must be awesome to take your passion for outdoor sports and put that into your you know professional environment too? Yeah, it's, it's been good. And, and I know I don't race or I'm not as fast as I used to be. I don't really race much anymore, but you know, my whole, I guess, childhood, uh, all the way, you know, through adult life, I've, I've been in sports and ran in college and got into Nordic skiing, um, got into bike fat, uh, mountain bike racing. Uh, and just, it's just been kind of interesting in that it, when I started these bicycle industry insurance programs, um, those things were so close to me that I, it, I, it wasn't even my idea. It was our, our CEO was like, why don't we have a national program in the bicycle industry? That's where your passion is. You're, you know, you're doing all this vol- volunteering and working in the industry already, you know, indirectly. And I'm like, wow, that's a great idea. So <laughs> it wasn't even my idea. And it's, you know, it seems like I would have come up with that idea. So yeah, it's been, it's fun because, um, you know, insurance isn't exactly exciting. I, I've been doing this for 27 years. And I would say the part about my job uh, that I like the least is the part that 
pays me, <laughs> which is insurance. It's getting to meet and really help people that have more personal interests than, uh, you know, than anything. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's good. I don't think of insurance as the most like exotic <laughs> industry, but you have definitely made it fun. And I was on this Zoom call last night. We had an industry real talk, like invite only. I'll have to get you the link on that. But um, part of what we talked about was just that, that if you, you know, being that you're an athlete and you love cycling, you can bring that passion into your career and it gives you, it equips you with the better tools to make an even bigger impact. So, um, and just under being able to understand it's, it's no different than why I would say the majority of bike shops own bike shops. It's yeah. because of their personal interests. So it's just yeah, a, a you different, can connect. different you can way connect sure. on a real level. Um, yep. Okay. So this is good. Before we keep moving forward, I just want to call out to one of our association partners. Uh, so this week, Rochelle and I had a zoom with Neil Mack of Beeline Connect. Um, Beeline Connect, I had not personally heard of before. I knew the Beeline Vans, but Beeline Connect is a free online scheduling tool for bicycle retail owners um, to check out and implement on their website if they wanted to. And basically, it's a platform that helps you connect and reach more consumers with their partner fulfillment programs. So head on over to the MBDA website. We have a partner page. You can learn more about Beeline Connect there. And thank you, Neil, for being an association member and supporting our organization. Um, all right. So Scott. You're, you're in the hot seat today. All right, good. It's a couch, actually. <laughs> you're in a couch. So yeah. how, tell me, like, you live in the hometown of the famous Berkey. What is that like? Like, how many people come in? Talk to me about that. Well, okay. So, the yeah, that's actually probably how I ended up here. Um, little, I'll try to, like, make this a quick story. But uh, I have some relatives from Hayward. So I used to come up here as a kid a couple times a year. And when I was in college and done with running eligibility, I got talked into buying some Nordic skis. And then I just decided to sign up for the Berkey and I had to do a qualifying race. And um, yeah, so I ended up after I went to graduate school and the program I was in was kind of changed at Montana State. So I was like, now what am I going to do? And I ended up... Um, I ended up getting out the Wisconsin map and I crossed out everything south of Highway 70, but I kept focusing on Hayward. And then I finally, um, I just moved here and I didn't know really anybody other than a couple rel relatives. And so living here, um, you know, after doing the Berkey, it was kind of like really cool just to have a lot of people. Again, I don't know anybody, but a lot of people like doing the same thing. So, you know, it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, we live like a mile and a half from the Berkey trail and all of our uh, mountain bike and fat bike trail system. And, you know, it's, there's always people, you know, doing things here that, that are, you know, like, I guess you'd pr probably be considered like a weirdo if you're in most parts of the country and you're roller skiing, but it's like, it's kind of a normal thing here. So, you know, doing, doing the events and you know, like all the Berkey events, you know, there's a, a, a running race that I helped start too. That's the, uh, was a trail national trail half marathon. So, I mean, just doing the Berkey events, you and living here, it's, it's pretty cool because it's all like really in the back, in your backyard. And, you know, and it's exciting. I mean, there's 10, 
11,000 people that do the Berkey ski race. And for this year, they did it over five days and it was obviously smaller and fat bike Berkey was smaller, but on a normal year, it's, you know, it's an amazing organization. I'm not on the board anymore. I was on the board for 12, 12 years or so. Okay. And just the infrastructure that they have and how well that event it's, it's world-class. I mean, it's, you know, the, the fundraising capabilities and just the, the, the infrastructure that they're able to raise monies and raise revenues to do, you know, it, you really learn, I really learned a lot about events and event coverage and how to, how to manage that being on that, that board. Cause it's, it is just top notch. It's unbelievable. It's definitely been an event that's always been on my list, but just logistics, you know, to come from New York to get out there. And then just the yeah. unknown, the unknown, right. You, as I mean, I've done Ironmans, I've done a lot of ultra runs, yep. I've done a lot of mountain biking, but the unknown of getting to an event like that is a little bit intimidating. Like what if, what would you give to someone who's been considering, uh, yep. you know, registering, but maybe hasn't anything you could give for insiders point of um, view? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, don't be a, don't, don't freak out. They'll, they'll hold your hand. Like, so <laughs> but I think the hardest part about the Berkey besides it's a very difficult race is, is just, uh, at least for me, like, I don't like big crowds. So like just getting your packet, you know, there's like, Oh my God, this expo is so huge. Just probably like, you know, doing a marathon and, you know, similar amount of people, you know, and then getting to the start and making sure you grab the right. Speed. I'd just say for the first one, just don't sweat it. You know, you can just follow everybody and it's, it's, it's really not that difficult to, to do. It's like, once you're signed up, yeah, no matter what, you're going to be nervous because it's, you know, it's a kind of a, just, it's a huge event. It's more, more exciting than nerves. Yeah. I don't know, I, you should just do it. It's it's like nervous excitement, right? It's <laughs> total nervous excitement. No, I don't think there's anything to freak out about or be scared, but it's just, yeah, you're going to, you're probably going to be like, you know, how I am after a pot of coffee, you know, just like, you know, really kind of hyper and it's just a lot of excitement. It, and then the energy at the start, it's just overwhelming. It's, it's cool. It's really exciting. So, all right, you got me convinced. So that's what we'll do. We'll have a, yep. <laughs> we'll have a Berkey. So how did the fat bike Berkey come about? Okay. So when I was on the board, so this is going back about 10 years ago, you know, I've been, I was kind of one of the first people in our area to, you know, fat, have a fat bike. Um, there's a video on my LinkedIn page about the, the kind of the day that it came into my, my head. But we were always thinking, I was always like, God, it'd be so cool to have a race, a fat bike race on the Berkey trail. I've, I've biked on it, you know, like late in the year when you're, when it's basically the, the season's done. And I'm like, God, this is so fast. How fun would this be? And I would say our board at the time uh, were, I'll just say it, they were closed-minded. They were really all about Nordic skiing. And so I, but I did talk our director at the time into, you know, getting it on the agenda at a board meeting. And they said, one year, you can have a, have this. And for people that don't know the Berkebiner ski trail, it's a 40 foot wide highway that is either up or down. It's wicked fast, steep downhills and there's nothing flat on it and when they groom it it's as hard as concrete and it's crazy crazy speeds on the downhills and and they said well, okay you can do it one year and i um and we'll just see because they were concerned was well is it going to wreck the trail I'm like it really shouldn't matter they just regroom it but um so i encouraged the board the first year to um 
come and volunteer because what I wanted, I wanted to see, have them see how much fun the riders were having because, I mean, it's like, uh, and I remember that I was working at one of the aid stations on the first one and I could hear somebody laughing coming down the trail. I'm like, what's this? It was the person that was leading the race was laughing out loud on the downhill because it was so crazy fast. And I'm like, yeah, I think, you know, that person's racing all out and laughing. <laughs> and and so then it just ballooned from there. So it was a overwhelming success. It didn't ruin the trail. In fact, it, you couldn't even tell there was an event on there. So, yeah. <laughs> that sounds awesome. So, so anyone can register for this and it takes place when it takes place. What, what time of year? It's, it's usually the first or second weekend in March. So it was actually last weekend. Okay. All right. And how many riders usually come? Um, well, this year, obviously, well, I think the biggest year was 1200. So, wow. yeah, wow. that's awesome. And, and that's a spectacle to see like all the fat, fat bikers kind of start rolling out at once. And last year, last week was out obviously way down with a lot of people just didn't want to do it or, you know, and then it was sketchy weather. You know, we had a big warm uh, meltdown with of snow. So the weather has been a little strange, right? It got really warm yeah. and now it's cold again. Yeah. Um, so that's on my list too. So I guess I'll be visiting you quite often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do a two week vacation. You just do both in the same time period. So <laughs> I could talk about cycling all day long, but I want to flip to corporate you. Um, So tell us about Marsh and McLennan and how you started to work for the company. Okay. So um, Marsh and McLennan purchased the company that I previously worked for, which was a, you know, a pretty big insurance agency. They bought us, I think 12, 12 years ago. So Marsh, yeah, and Marsh and McLennan, uh, so I actually, right out of college, I got in the insurance industry, and I've, it's actually been three employers, but same same physical location. Um, and yeah, so Marsh and McLennan, a lot of people don't know, means nothing to them. So Marsh and McLennan is a subsidiary of Marsh USA. We're uh, an insurance broker, um, global, over 500 offices in the U.S. We're the largest insurance broker in the world, and they... What I like about Marsh and McLennan, which is more of the middle market, which would be most bicycle industry accounts, is they they kind of allow me to to just run with what I what I do, and if I want to add things, I I have resources um, to add a program to add you know whatever we need to make to make it work on a on a national basis. So and that and that's really how how I kind of started with the bicycle industry programs was you know, working in a kind of a rural area, I was a generalist, meaning I was writing all sorts of accounts and I kept having to drive further and further away to get new accounts. And uh-huh. it just was getting to the point where like, I, I can't drive two hours, three hours away and try to try. So we just decided to, to create a, a program that'll be more more online and, and nationally focused. And and then of course there's, we've added several programs to that that mix, so. So when you started with them, they didn't have retail bike policies. This is something that you started getting. Uh, yeah, we, we started it. I mean, again, it was, wasn't my idea, but there was a, there was a need back in 2008, I think, um, you know, I knew what most insurance policies covered and I knew what like most bike shops did. And there was definitely a disconnect in, 
in what the insurance carriers with their sort of off the shelf business owners policy, the same one that they would write up office supply store was not really designed for bike shops. Bike shops are, have so many unique exposures that, that were not properly covered. So we, we had to tailor it. We took a business owner's policy and then added coverage for, um, you know, some of the common things. And back then it was like the main common things were bike rental. I mean, most policies didn't cover it. Shops were doing it and just thought they had coverage and then shop ride liability, you know, your Tuesday night group ride or your Saturday morning women's ride or whatever it might be. And then coverage for, you know, voluntary departure property, which is the fake ID, fake credit card, someone test rides a bike and you never see them again scenario. And of course, since then it's morphed as the industry has changed and there's all these new exposures. Um, so that's been nice to have, you know, once you get so much business with a particular carrier or carriers, they, they're more open to listening to what the emerging trends are and then creating a solution before anybody else does, you know, whether it's uh, mobile repair or oh, e-bikes. I mean, it, I can't, I've lost count of all the meetings I've had about e-bikes and making sure they understand the emerging trends and what they are and what they're not and how to cover them. So it can kind of go on and on as things, as things morph and change. Um, we've been able to stay way ahead of the curve, like, cause insurance industry does insurance companies don't change very quickly. So you get to like start way in advance. So you're, so Marsha McLennan is constantly like looking at the policy and adjusting it for the current trends as they come forward. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. great. Um, yeah. So I guess, all right, I, I owned a shop for a while and I did go, I'm sorry, I'm confessing to you right now with a local insurance agent, but why, like, what do they get from, what, what would our members or bicycle retailers get from you instead of going with their local agent? Well, one, our, so the coverages, I mean, you go to your local broker and you can go to the same carriers that we work with, but your, your, your policy is not going to have the same, same coverages. But most importantly is most brokers, and I've, I, I've lost count how many policies that I've helped people fix that, you know, they were just, they, the broker may, because they don't work in that space, you know, very often, or maybe just that's the only bike shop they write. They don't know what they don't know, so they don't know what to ask. So the underwriter just thinks it's a business, it's just a just a bike shop. Whereas you know when you do our online application, we have probably twenty or thirty additional questions that are specific to bike shops. The questions that you know a insurance carrier with their standard business owner's policy will not ask about shop rides. Will not ask you know about the care custom control. Will not ask about if, whether you do bike tours. Well, not, you know, I can go on and on and on and on. So all we, these yeah. things that are so specific to the bike industry, I think, I think as a, as a person who owns a shop, if we could, you know, as shop owners, just take that survey to boom, if you don't know about this, this is important, right? Like this is great yeah. stuff. Well, and the e-bike thing is probably the, the, you most, I can say, I mean, we work with virtually every company. And I can tell you there's only three of the ones and that those are the three we work with that have any comfort level with, with any shop selling class three e-bikes. So going back two years ago, you know, I could see, you know, the, the big, the big brands are pushing class 
one and three, and then there's some class two, of course, in there. But ultimately, you know, we had to start that process because I knew what the trends were. I knew that there, you know, if, if every carrier, um, if the, all the proper questions were asked by, you know, just your common insurance broker that doesn't specialize, if they, if they did ask, you know, do you sell, class, what percent do you sell of class one, two, and three? There's really no, no carriers are really comfortable with that risk, the class three, except for within our program. But that was a huge, you know, we are underwriters. I, I actually encourage them to rent a class one and rent a class three e-bike. So they know what they are and what they're not. And that was a good, good exercise with good results. So. Yeah. So shops that participate with Marsha McLennan, will they, if they have questions, would they call you directly or is there, Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Um, because you can give real time advice from someone who's, you know, yes. in the industry. So, so yeah. So my team, like I, I have, I have some support staff that only work basically on the, on the bike shop program. So they are like billing questions and things of that sort, you know, or certificates of insurance. I don't even have the ability to do either of those uh, on my system, but you know, those questions uh, that are technical in nature, or I'm thinking about doing this additional um, uh, service, you know, what are your thoughts? Is it something, you know, and I can provide sort of high level, high level, um, advice about what you should and shouldn't do to, to manage the risk, um, and the expectations. So, um, yeah. So I, I think, you know, since you're having these conversations, I would ask you then what is like the trending or like the number one thing that you see most shops doing wrong in terms of liability protection? Well, it, that's, I would say it's really based in the, the service department. So I, and I've done the presentation for for the service cues service summit i'm doing another one and and it was really focused on um sort of the risk management for repairing and assembling building up bikes that's where we see that's where we see all the big claims i mean the most common claim obviously would be you know a smash and grab like they're a dominant dime a dozen right now especially with the supply issues um, and, and stolen bikes being worth more than they were, but, but ultimately the big claims, the 250,000, the $2 million claims are all specific to bodily injury claims done caused by faulty work in the service department. So what shops are often doing wrong is, um, just in how they do the record keeping, um, you know, working on things maybe they shouldn't, um, not having good hiring or training procedures. So when, when we manage risk, I like to, I like to work backwards off of, okay, let's say you're getting sued because somebody got injured because you didn't repair something properly. Mm -hmm. What will the personal injury or the plaintiff's attorney ask you in court? And can you answer those questions properly? If so, they're going to ask you questions about your hiring. They're going to try to make your shop look, like you're irresponsible that they let you let up, you know, a new, uh, a new mechanic do the most complex repairs. They're going to, they're going to ask for your service records. They're going to want to make sure that archivable service records. And if you can't, you can't produce those, you're, you're likely going to lose. It's going to get really ugly. Um, and then just, you know, supervision and even, even things, you know, specific to, you know, having your tools, um, 
uh, tested for the proper Torx spec. So if your if your tools aren't um, regularly tested, and some there was an allegation that this injury was caused by this repair because it was under torqued or over torqued, you might even get asked, "Have you have you had that calibrated lately?" I mean, who would have thought that? But that's what happens. You've talked to enough attorneys. Pretty common question. So I would say that's the thing that our industry probably the bicycle industry needs to mimic what the auto industry does um, in that, you know, you go get your, you get your car repaired and they will have you sign off. It's like, okay, I noticed there's, you, you only have 10% left on your brake pads. You need to sign here that we, you, I have told you this and whether you've refused or accepted, you know, the, the repair. And it's a good way to write service by the way. So yeah, uh, yeah I think that's the biggest issue. So. It, se- it seems like a very simple thing, but I'm listening to you and I thank you. This is a tremendous conversation. Um, when I worked at a shop, we had a repair that we, I was managing the shop that we didn't do correct. And the person, um, the front stem bolts loosened and the person flipped over the handlebars and pretty bad injury to the face. And when, um, you know, the lawyers came in, they asked, do you have a bike build checklist? Do you have a checklist that your mechanics are signing off that they did all the, all these things. And another, just like you said, another thing was, do you have a torque wrench and when has it been calibrated? Same exact thing. And Mm -hmm. so we got in this habit, um, you know, and I had to retrain my, like almost every day, remind the staff, you have to complete these forms. You have to do this. And then we kept, we had to keep the records, but it became, so important. And, um, yep. it didn't, it didn't become important until we had a claim though. So that's what we want to, we want to let people know this yeah. is important before you have a claim. Right. Um, right. I mean, because if you have a claim, like right now we're in a, what's called a hard insurance market. I had a, I had a prospect who had a pretty bad claim due to a faulty, faulty work. And there I had tried to get them. They weren't with our program. Um, they got non-renewed by their insurance company because of it. And their premium went from because I couldn't get it back into our program because it was still an open claim. The, their premium went up from three thousand to twenty thousand. Wow! It, yeah, and that was like I went. We went to every market that would write that. And you know, being in our program, you have a little more latitude if you do have a claim because they're kind of treating it as 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 one big conglomerate, one big massive premium. But you know, in this case you know, I felt terrible. And I'm like, you know, there's nothing I could do about it at that, that, that point, because, um, you know, they weren't with, with, with us. And, but that there's your implication, like, well, why does it matter? Well, I'm sorry, a lot of, you know, $17,000 additional insurance premium that, that for a small shop, that, that might be a good chunk of your profits or, yeah. So um, we talk about like analyzing credit card fees, right? Like renegotiating contracts, like how often, and I'm sorry if I'm naive here, but how yeah. often can a shop like uh, renegotiate or, you know, shop insurance policies or renegotiate, you know, how often? Um, I mean, we, we actually, be, being that, we, I try to look at coverage and what carriers will do the proper coverage. And there's really only, only a few. And we will automatically take a look at um, take a look at at going to the other carriers if we see a disproportionate increase. And you know, being that there's really only one of our carriers that is writing shops, all shops, meaning even an e-bike specialty store, 
mm-hmm. unless there's a big increase that's disproportionate to the industry, we really want to keep everybody with the same carrier. When So what happens is if you, and we see this with contractors a lot because they're used to having to bid every job, right? So they think that's what they should do with their insurance. But when the underwriters look at the loss runs, they'll get a copy of the claims and they're with five companies in six years. They don't even take that account seriously because they're like, well, the most, the longest I'm ever going to keep this account is one year because every year they shop it and they're switching for a nickel. Um, and in our case, being that we folk were obviously very competitive on premium being a large broker's economies of scale, but we, we need to make sure that that the the cover the exposures are covered properly and and there's few carriers that are doing that so we try to keep them all with the right company for coverage and yeah i could go to west bend mutual and maybe save you 50 bucks but if you're not covered for half the things you do it's it, i wouldn't even recommend it because it's uh <clears throat> it's a errors and emissions hazard for me because you're not not covered for what you do but Scott, like, what if I was a bike shop owner right now and I was with mm-hmm. a local company? Like, could I come to you and change yep. my insurance? Or and you yep. can do it at any time. It doesn't matter. You can do it. Yeah, you can do it any any time. I mean, I would say half of the accounts that I write were the reason we're switching is is more because they're not covered for something, um, or they have concerns, or they have an exposure, or they're starting to sell e bikes, or whatever it might be, and we're we do it in the middle of the term and, and we're, we're most of the time we're less costly, even with the better coverage. So. so Scott, when you onboard a new account or when you're working with a new account, do you go through and like, you know, we're talking about, you're talking about like the service tips about like the torque wrench and the, in the checklist, mm-hmm. but do you go through and like give them pointers for their whole shop of where they can excel? So they're, you know, minimizing the risk. Yeah. Sometimes a lot of times if I have these conversations, you know, we have an online application, we go over it and then, Usually when we're going over the application together, that's when we start asking these additional questions or clarifications. And um, that's a really good time to kind of bring up some of those subjects. And then a lot of my clients that I've had for a long time, they, you know, they just call me out of the blue, like, you know, so I'm always getting things bounced off of me. Like, what do you think about this? How could we improve on this? Here are my concerns. And so do I do as much, you know, consult, I, I actually prefer doing the consultation than the, <laughs> than the insurance part of it. Cause that's, that's like, so, you know, I've done, done it for so long. So I'd rather do the consultative, but I, I have to write policies to get paid. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's part of it. Right. But yeah. so, did you tell me that you have like professional trail builder program? Like, do you have other programs for the bicycle industry? Yeah. So we, we have, I guess three sort of official programs, of course, the bike shop insurance program. And then we have one for product product liability program for bicycle manufacturers and suppliers. And that could be, you know, a variety, you know, of sizes, anything from, you know, a startup to a publicly traded uh, company. We've, we have tons and tons of, and then globally uh, we, so we're global. So I like, I just wrote a, you know, we, we just wrote a overseas factory in Europe with our Marsh, one of our Marsh Europe offices. We do product liability. So we team up with a lot of foreign uh, carrier, foreign manufacturers and suppliers. We'll handle the, the product liability stateside because the European companies, for example, 
they, those insurers don't want to write in North America because it's so litigious. Um, so that's, that's one, one of our programs. The other is for the, uh, for professional trail contractors. And I'm sure most shop owners, if you're in an area where there's mountain biking, kind of realize that the advocacy organizations uh, have sort of changed their thinking instead of actually building and building trails, uh, the local IMBA club chapter, um, they're actually becoming fundraising organizations. And then because the expectation of the riders coming to their areas is so high, they're, they're having to hire professional trail building contractors. And there's, there's a several hundred of these professional trail building contractors. So that, that is, um, you know, that's a, a growing program and it's, it's so it, it's still, it's really in its infancy. We, we write some really big ones with 70 full-time employees. Wow. Um, and there, there's really only a couple companies that, again, they're comfortable with that exposure simply because we've been working with them for long enough and trying to help them understand what they do and what the, what the liability hazards are. Cause it's a really, really unique type of type of, uh, exposure. Um, and then we do anything and everything in between, you know, we wrote some of the first bike share systems in the U S uh, and then all sorts of quirky things that are, um, you know, with micro mobility. So pretty much anything I get referred for all sorts of crazy things that, that involve bicycles. So sounds like you guys are really a standout, like supporter of our industry. So I think everyone's applauding your efforts yeah. right now. So now I'm thinking about trail building and I'm thinking about that 55 mile fat bike trail system. Where <laughs> Where is that? So you were instrumental in like kind of building this? Yeah, it's, it was a group of us. So again, go back like 10 years ago and there's maybe a dozen of us locals that were like, like fat biking is really cool. We have fat bikes, but we really don't have places to ride that are groomed. So we actually started a um, kind of a, we just called it a club. It was, we were nothing. I mean, we weren't like a 501C. We're just like, we called ourselves like the Namakagan Fat Bike Club. And <laughs> and we had a couple of friends that had uh, snowmobiles and were good at welding and, and like volunteered to groom. And so we started, we had a meeting and we needed to raise some money. And we literally passed the hat around and raised like, I think like $8,000 in the meeting or you know, just we want this to happen. Here's my, my golf club membership. And, you know, here's $500. And we, we bought some more equipment. And then that we started with like 10 miles of trail of one of our existing trail systems. We got the okay to groom in the winter and, and then uh, started adding more. And then finally our, our local advocacy organization, which is Canva, Schwamigan area mountain bike association, we kind of became more official and, and they wanted to uh, sort of add in that, that into the, the services. And now we have, uh, gosh, I bet we have five different groomers, five different snowmobiles and groomers and then volunteers. And we had some paid staff. So it's 55 miles of, wow. um, of groom trails. So it's a huge system. Um, and then I don't count the, the trails on our, in our backyard, but uh, those are private, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really cool. Um, 
to see. And, and, and now, you know, we just get, you can get a lot of visitors and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot, of, it's very labor intensive, but you know, where else can you ride in the middle of the woods on, you know, yeah, sidewalk. 55 miles. That is like no joke. That's a solid effort. So um, I think these longer trail systems for me, definitely as an endurance mountain biker are super appealing. So um, thank you for that. More trails, more positive places to ride. And I don't um, know if I mentioned the, the gravel. Did I tell you about the gravel mapping project that I helped with? Briefly, but please tell me more. <laughs> yeah. So again, a lot of the trail building organizations are and I mean, I think ours was probably the first where we we had recognized that not everybody not everybody wants to ride single track every day if they're visiting the area or even locals. And our biggest fear, one of our fears, or people people's fears, are getting lost, like in our national forest. Like, I mean, you can go like all the way into the middle of UP on and gravel from from where I am, and and I've been. Pre- um, I have been actually um, promoting gravel riding through a, a Facebook page. And then we decided that maybe we need to kind of make a, make some maps and have them vetted. So last, how was it last two summers ago, we took some of my favorite routes. So there's like 36 routes, four different starting areas, three different distances per, you know, three or four different distances per kind of location. And we created a, a vetted, so we could do a paper map that you could download, like a big area map. You could do a cluster map of you know, this particular area in Clam Lake or Drummond. And then we have all the GPX files, so you can just download the files. And I would say that this is pretty exciting because when we would go riding in the middle of nowhere where I'd never seen a bicycle, I'd see tracks, I'm like, wow, people must be looking at these maps. And then I started running into people like run into Rich Tower from QBP. I'm like, this is so great. You know, like in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, okay, this is a, it, 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 and I think other organizations need to do this because the biggest fear is getting lost. I mean, it's scary, especially going into a new area. And and now it's just, just follow your GPS and you know, you want to ride 40 miles, here's 40 mile loop. So that's yeah. been pretty cool. Mapping systems are definitely like, I know I, when I travel, I go visit a lot of trails and having trail forks, I feel very confident, but having a great mapping system is key. Um, but so building trails and having events like Berkey probably have a great economic impact on your area and community. I know that you co-authored, um, what was, tell me what, tell me again. Uh, a couple things. Uh, Economic Impact of Silent Sports Enthusiasts. So I co-authored that um, with some folks at the University of Wisconsin and then um, Economic Impact of Second Homeowners, which I kind of tied the two together into some presentations that I've done uh, throughout the US. Um, mostly on just the general, on, generally on the economic impact of trails for a community. I think that anyone ha- who has an opportunity to talk with you um, can get a lot. <laughs> you have a lot of... Uh, little great tidbits of information and nuggets to offer. And you're also on the NICA board, which is fabulous to me. I don't know how you have time to do all this. Um, what are you seeing with NICA and ways, you know, right now we're looking to really engage these new riders and get new people into the sport. Talk to me about your role in NICA. Um, yeah. So NICA, you know, continues to grow and then to kind of there's growth year over year with the existing leagues. And then of course, trying to add new ones. 
in a COVID year, last year was really kind of, kind of strange. Um, you know, the, some of the things that I think are really cool, uh, the, um, really trying to engage young girls in or girls into in riding because there's still a disproportionate amount. Um, and what, what I found really interesting over the last couple of years is, you know, we started this adventure programming and I, that's something that I sort of like personally passionate about because, you know, that's, that's me. I like, I like that. And there's a crazy amount of percentage of the kids that really they, they go to practice every day. They, they have no interest in doing a race, but they want to ride their bikes with their friends. And so sort of this adventure programming and there's different, you know, Pennsylvania's got a really cool one. There's really cool one in Michigan, the 906 adventure team, you know, doing stuff. We're like, we're going to see if we can climb up this hill and then we're going to pick blueberries. Like (laughs) that, like I was always very competitive, but like my brain, like even back when I was a kid, I'll be like, yeah, I just want to like go like see if I can get up this hill and pick blueberries, you know? (laughs) And, uh, so I, I like, I really like where that's going. Um, yeah. because I think, so what I, what I see with like friends that have, have, have kids is, you know, when they're really into racing, they may or may not continue that, but it seems like if you're just inherently into like adventure and the outdoors, you're probably going to do it. You're probably going to more likely to do it the rest of your life. And of course, that's great for the bicycle industry because it's more butts on bikes. So, right. yeah, NICA's to it's a it's a really cool cool organization, and yeah, it's it's a it's a bunch of time, but it's you know a great board, and you know it's I just wish I had that when I was a kid. So that's why I'm on the board. Yeah, my daughter is involved, and in, uh, it's a really great great thing for kids. Um, awesome. All right, so not to flip it back over to the work side, but I just want to give our retail uh, retailers who are listening just a little bit more advice. I'm personally, you know, this past year was, you know, very interesting the way that retailers adapted to COVID. Is there any post-COVID or, I mean, I guess we're, I guess we're still there, but any liability concerns, anything with insurance that people should be thinking about? I, I you know, didn't give you a heads up. I was going to ask you this one, so I'm kind of putting yeah. it you know, it's interesting. So when COVID began, you know, a lot of my calls were, um, a lot of my calls were really about thinking when the, when the assumption was made that they were going to have to close down, which of course we know other than in a few States like New Jersey, they, they didn't, um, you know, the concerns were over business income and whether a, you know, pandemic or really it's a communicable disease exclusion, if that would apply. And, and that's the case. But we're, we're already well beyond that. Uh, I don't see there being any issues, um, you know, like a specific COVID. Are there any any liabilities that 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 may occur? I mean, there's still the I think the jury's still out with um, whether there'll be any personal injury at, um, or employment uh, employment employers law uh, type of claims against retailers if let's just say an employee got sick or a customer got sick because you let them in their store and somebody got infected mm-hmm. you know nobody knows how these if 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 and how you know I, I don't think bike shops are really at that much of a risk as as other industries um there just isn't any cl- there's no no case law i don't really know anything that's going on in that world so you know i think right now the the biggest issues for bike shops are, 
just directly related to COVID, but not the disease COVID. It's just supply issues and, you know, yeah. and employee burnout and, <laughs> and all the things I keep hearing about over and over and over, you know, people are tired. And, and I, I think the outdoor industry in general is just going to keep growing. So it's, that's, that's what I see happening. I agree with you. So, so just to rewind for one second. So there's no, um, like form or protocol in place that, you know, from insurance companies that bicycle retailers need to, you know, have disinfectant when people come in the door, there's no set standard for dealing with um, operations. I mean, it, it's really just like, whether it's, uh, you know, your your local or state uh, health department, um, they're really, the insurance industry is just like, like anything, if it's, if it's really not about the insurance, they're going to go and they want you to just use sort of the recommended, um, mm-hmm. with the recommendations of an organization that actually specializes in that. I mean, they're not, most shops aren't big enough where you're really going to be getting OSHA pounding on the door, but that's a whole nother, another <laughs> subject. Uh, and our risk managers are, our, our safety consultants are actually better at, at, at knowing what those are, but um, yeah, for the, for the most part, it's just whatever's recommended, you're not going to get, you know, because it's not, there's not a liability, there's not liability coverage for that. So the insurance industry, really, they can't really mandate that you do something when it's not even covered in the policy. So. And the other thing that comes um, often to mind, and I know because I used to lead group rides from my shop, you know, seven days a week, pretty much, we were always going out. It did great things for building community, but the liability of leading a group ride, it's not always covered under your insurance, correct? Um, Yeah, I mean, most, I would say virtually every carrier excludes that. We cover it. And and obviously the, the claim scenario you're trying to protect yourself against is, if somebody gets injured and I would say you may be really good friends with, with your customers, but you may not be really good friends with their spouse who's ticked off if they get injured and can't work. Um, and then there's also potential for subrogation. So if somebody gets injured, your health insurance or disability insurance carrier will like, well, where did you get hurt? Well, it was on a group ride. Well, where was that? Okay. We're going to go and try to recoup some costs. So, but I would say that the biggest liability with these group rides is, you know, again, how do you answer the the personal in- injuries attorney's question? The question will be, why did you pick that route? Isn't there a safer route? Mm. So you have to kind of be able to think about that. It's like, you know, why did you go on Highway 2 when Highway 7 clearly goes kind of in a similar direction with less traffic? So it's really, it's just common sense. You want, you, you want to be safe as the ride leader. You want your, your, your customers to be safe. So, you know, you have to use common sense on where you take and where you suggest uh, the rides. So it's very important. So many things to think about, Scott. This is this has been really eye-opening for me. Um, so what this year, what's next for you? What's on your agenda this year? Oh, let's see. I we're yeah, just I think it's gonna be a busy work year and and a couple of vacations. We're supposed nice. to be in North Carolina but I recovering from my broken foot. So yeah, I think I'm just gonna be, gonna be busy with, with work and, and trying to get out and play every day a little bit. That's, that's sort of my MO. So. Um, so in prepping for this conversation, you said, I can talk all day. Don't be shy. Is there anything <laughs> I didn't ask you? Maybe that's super important that I, that we, you want to add in here. 
Uh, I think I think we I think he asked some good questions. I don't really have anything too too exciting to add, <laughs> but I can talk all day. So, <laughs> <laughs> Scott, if if people listening want to get a, a hold of you, I know there's a link um, off the MBDA website. Is there any? Do you have a direct email you want to share? Or anything? Yeah. So my and you can if you just look up uh, Marsha McLennan Bike Shop Insurance Program. It's all over. I got videos and videos on the site and all over the internet and articles that I've written. But um, my email is scott.chapin at marshmma.com. So S-C-O-T-T dot C-H-A-P-I-N at M-A-R-S-H-M-M-A.com. And otherwise you can just call uh, my direct line 715-634-6513. So that's how you get a hold of me. Scott, can people just, if they have questions, if they like, it's just, they can just call you and you yep, chat it just, out. Just call. Yeah. Most of my, most of my days are mostly like lots of 15 minute meetings. So I normally can take calls in between. So Scott, you have been awesome. I know um, not only speaking for the MBDA, but the work you do with people for bikes and the professional bike mechanics association and the bike cooperative, you're an amazing soul. You're really your business you. attitude and the um, ways you've been instrumental in your community is very top notch. So it's been my pleasure to get to know you. And I know we're going to continue to work closer together. So yeah, thank no, you. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's nice to hear. Thank you. So listeners, that is it. Um, thanks Scott for joining us. I invite those listening to connect with me and come on bicycle retail radio and share your story. Um, lots of love for our industry. There's lots of w- great webinars and member networking meetings that are coming up. So check the MBDA website, share this episode with your friends and on social media, and we appreciate your support and for you listening. And with this, we go. Peace. Thanks. See ya. Bye. Bye. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Music